What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Martyrs and Missionaries is a production of Revive Studios. You're listening to Martyrs and Missionaries. I'm Elise, and every episode I'll bring you a new martyr and or missionary, the called and the brave. In this episode, we're talking about Lilius Trotter, artist and missionary to North Africa. One of the things I love about doing this show is being able to find people that I've never heard of before. And whenever you learn about them, you're like, why have I never heard of this person before? Their ministry was absolutely amazing. And that is the life of Lilius Trotter. And for this episode, I actually found her biography that was written by her friend, Blanche Piggott, that was written shortly after Lilius's death. And this is a rare kind of opportunity, I feel like, because it's not very often that you have somebody who is the friend of this person that's writing their biography. So it gives you all sorts of little interesting tidbits that you don't otherwise have in different biographies, at least not firsthand. Um, And I actually want to include... This little bit here that she kind of starts off with uh, about meeting Lilius, because I I think it gives us a good um, baseline for the kind of person that Lilius was. She says, My own first meeting with Lilius Trotter was in 1874. A mission was being held in Cromer, and we had both been asked to help. I do not think I saw much of her during the mission, but soon afterwards she came over to luncheon with us. We walked across the park to the edge of the wood, where the stately trees stand like a solemn cathedral aisle. I had come to the turning of ways in my life and was sorely perplexed, realizing that to follow what I felt was God's will for me would be the breaking of the most precious ties. I told her my difficulty and in great distress cried, what must I do? Without hesitation, she answered, you can only obey God. Soon after, we made an amusing contract to take out a lease of friendship for five years. And wonderful to say, she never forgot at the end of the appointed time to write and renew the lease, though later we extended it to 10 years. And when she last returned to England in 1924, after her visit here, she wrote, We had better take it out now for 99 years, which will land us in the millennium. This utter faithfulness in all her dealings, manwards and godwards, was the very distinctive feature of her life. She set her face steadfastly to follow her master. Lilius Trotter was born in 1853 as the seventh to nine children to a wealthy, well-to-do couple in London's West End. She was raised with a private tutor. She had a governess. She had all the trappings of wealth and status. She became a believer in her teen years, but really didn't start taking her faith seriously until she was 21 years old when she began to focus her life on ministry after listening to D.L. Moody and Ira Sankey, and she started attending the Keswick Conventions, which I believe I've mentioned on previous episodes, particularly Amy Carmichael. I know Gladys had some affiliation with the Keswicks, also Hudson Taylor. There's actually a ton of missionaries and pastors during this time that were influenced by the Keswick movement, the Keswick Conventions and Lilius was no exception to that. 
She joined the newly founded YWCA, or the Young Women's Christian Association, and she worked with prostitutes in downtown London. She taught them skills, which provided them a way out of their current professions. She also helped found the first women's public restaurant so they didn't have to eat their bagged lunch on the side of the road. So everything's going really well. She's got this ministry down. God has pulled her in a certain direction towards ministry. And then two years later, she arrives at a bit of a crossroads, or she will arrive at a crossroads. She's traveling in Venice with her mother, who realizes that John Ruskin is staying in the same hotel as them. Now, if you're like me, I said, who on earth is John Ruskin? But apparently he's quite well known. So he's a philosopher, a artist, a big, big name. He's just, um, everybody loves his art. He's just made quite the name for himself. I think he works at Oxford as well. Uh, Now you have to ask the question here, does the mother just happen to discover that John Ruskin is at Venice or does she, you know, does she kind of make this thing happen? So yeah, I've seen enough Jane Austen to know that that's not always coincidence. Lilius Trotter loves to draw. She loves to paint. She's actually quite good at it, or at least her mother thinks she has quite the gift for it. So she writes Ruskin asking if he could take a look at her drawings, and he reluctantly agrees. I think it's one of those things where it's like, well, I don't know. I guess I can. I guess I can look. I can indulge you. I'm sure this wasn't the first time he'd had somebody, you know, ask to look at their paintings, and he didn't have the highest opinion of women art. Women's art. In the first place, he didn't think that women were capable of drawing complex art. So when he sees Lilius's and he says, oh my goodness, this is actually really good. So he asks to meet Lilius. He kind of takes her under his wing and under his tutelage, she gets much better. She starts using more colors. She becomes quite adept. And many people, when they talk about Lilius Trotter, they focus on her life as an artist, her relationship with John Ruskin, which... It seems there might have been something romantic there as well. John Ruskin is significantly older than she is, and uh, there are some letters that kind of got passed between the two of them that seemed like maybe there was something going on, or maybe there was something John Ruskin wanted to happen, and Lilius just wasn't there. There's even the hint that he might have actually asked her to marry him, and she said no. So they had a very complicated relationship. And it can be tempting to get into the weeds of like, well, what would have happened if, like if she had become an artist, you know, what are all these things? Like if she, if she didn't become a missionary, uh, what else could she have been? And people kind of get stuck here, I think, especially when it comes to her story. Because when you, when you hear about her, they're like, wow, she was an artist, but she had 40 thriving years of ministry. And I also find it interesting that her biographer, her friend, spends almost no time talking about Ruskin and in fact spends most of the time talking about her 40 years of ministry. In 1878, Lilius's mother passes away, which leaves her as basically an orphan because her father had passed away when she was 12. And in 1879, this is three years after she met Ruskin, Lilius is vacillating between these two worlds because she wants to do ministry. She wants to do God's will. But John Ruskin says, well, if you become an artist, if you actually formally join me, then you can devote yourself to art and you could become one of the greatest living painters and do things immortal. This is quite the appeal to ego. And I think any of us would be, you know, oh my goodness, I can be immortal, especially because art is such a, it's its own scene, it's its own world. And you can get really wrapped up in the different techniques of artistry. And as you might be able to tell, I'm not a painter. I don't know anything about art. Um, 
so I do know, though, that it's a huge thing, kind of like music. You can become very closed off and just that's all that matters is music or art. And so this is a really, uh, a really huge deal for her. And so she prays for weeks. She asks people for prayer. And she eventually comes to the conclusion that she says, I can see clear as daylight now that I cannot give myself to painting in the way that he means and continue still to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And Ruskin's very disappointed by this. Ruskin is a believer, I think. He renounced his faith earlier in his life, but there seems to be a coming back to God later on in his life. And I'm not sure exactly you know, how serious that was to him, um, but he definitely considered Lilius's calling to art higher than her calling to ministry, which is a bit of a red flag. Uh, he tries to persuade her differently, and, and he tries for many years. He doesn't just give up after a couple months. Like He just consistently is, is telling her, like, hey, this is what you could do. And it doesn't really work on her much beyond, like, beyond the time that she made her decision. They still remained good friends, and they wrote and visited each other, uh, but she continues to work at the YWCA, and she works on her art, but it's definitely taken the, the back seat to her life, so it's no longer, you know, seeking towards professionalism, but more as an outlet that she sees that God has given her this gift that she wants to use and th- draw the things that she sees, but it's not something she's aspiring anymore to become, you know, the main focus of her life. And in fact, she even took it a step further because she said, well, if I'm going to do ministry, like I would put away all of my painting supplies to follow God. Like this was just a complete, like if God closes that door, I would be willing to just pack it all in and follow God. So she was under no illusion that she would be able to maintain these two things at the same time, which is a huge sacrifice for her. In 1884, this is about five years after the uh, the decision to do ministry, she has to undergo a minor operation. It's not really said what it is or what it's you know what it's about, but it seems to have to deal with stress, and it seems to be maybe a heart surgery. And the operation does not go very well, and it leaves her with a permanently weak heart, and she's actually an invalid for a period of time after this. When she was finally able to go back to work, she spent her time helping distraught women in extreme distress. For example, she stayed up all night with a woman who was suicidal and was very determined to succeed in her attempts. And this was obviously not good for her heart. This is a very high stress situation. But a few things brought her cheer. Two workers in the YWCA felt a call towards missions. One of them felt called to go to China. The other felt called to go to India. And she herself was feeling a call towards North Africa. And every time she prayed, North Africa was brought to her mind. So one evening, she attended a meeting about some other mission field. It wasn't even North Africa. And at the end of the meeting, someone stood up and asked if anyone felt they were being called to North Africa. And Lilia stood up and said, me, he's calling me. Now, the two missions agencies she approached shortly after this did not agree with Lilius's calling. They determined that she was too weak to go due to her heart condition, and so they would not allow her to join up with them. And she exhausted all the missions agencies that were working in North Africa, but she was not to be dissuaded. And I mentioned earlier that she comes from a very well-to-do family, and she had her own money. Uh, she had received her inheritance, and so money was literally no object to her. So there was a group of friends who also had money who decided that they would all go together on their own dime. And so they spent some months studying medicine, and then they just went for it. And they decided to go to Algiers, which is the capital of Algeria, which was currently controlled by the French, and Algeria was also a Muslim country. 
Both of these things would prove to be problematic at different times in different ways. Uh, Lilia says English, the French and the English don't really get along until World War I. Uh, so there's just a lot of different red tape that was stopping them. Obviously, uh, France is also Catholic, so that was another problem for them. Um, and, and we're not actually going to focus on the government side of this. We're mostly going to focus on her ministry uh, to the Muslims there. But I wanted to point out that there were multiple factors that at different times made their lives and ministries very difficult. When you think about going from England to North Africa, you think it will take you much longer when we go through these other missionary stories where they're traveling uh, by boat. It takes them like months, uh, but it only takes five days to get from England to Algeria, and that's in the late 1800s. Uh, so I'll actually read to you her short diary entries from each day they were traveling. She kept a journal diary, a journal entry every single day. All of her life, she wrote one page every day, which is a lot of writing to do. So she was very meticulous. So on March 5th, 1888, she says, left Waterloo at 550 with the chorus from the platform, crown him Lord of all, ringing in our ears and hearts. Katie Stewart, Lucy Lewis, and I had the carriage to ourselves, so we were able to kneel down and give our dear ones into God's hands. At Southampton, Blanche Hayworth joined us. It was a strange, glad feeling of utter loosening and being cast upon God as the paddle wheels gave their first throb. The morning broke over a clear blue range of mountains with a foreground of olive, cypress, and almond blossom, though the earth was white with frost. The Marseille harbor looked lovely in the afternoon sunlight as we steamed out, but one's eyes and hearts seemed to be swept away from the last bit of Europe to see the sea line in front with Africa beyond it. At sunset next day, the first peaks of land came into sight, dim and purple, and as the night darkened, the phosphorescence became wonderful, making a firmament of green starry flashes on the water, beside the silver ones overhead. We went below for a time, and on coming out again, there was a far-stretching cluster of golden stars, the lights of Algiers. As the pilot's boat came up, it broke a path of living fire— and flakes of it dropped from the oars and ropes till we were almost beside ourselves with joy. We were alone on the upper deck, and the noise of letting off steam gave cover to singing once more, Crown Him Lord of All. On March 10th, she says, I shall never forget the loveliness of our first sight out of our porthole of the Arab town rising tier above tier in a glow of cream color against the blue-gray western sky, the water glimmering in blue and gold below, and a flock of gulls sailing and wheeling alternately between us and the land. We felt like children set out for a holiday. Everything was so new and wonderful, and we were almost exhausted by delight before we even reached our lodging. When they arrived, they spoke not one single word of Arabic, but they did speak French. And like I said, Algeria was at this time owned by France. So all of their earlier meetings with people were conducted with French-speaking Algerians. They spent their day studying Arabic in Bible study and prayer, and then went to not Bible study and prayer in Arabic, but they spent time studying the Bible and in prayer, and then working at the McCall Mission Center, speaking in French to the people in attendance. It wasn't until they went into this little Arab hamlet that they learned something terribly tragic. The women in the hamlet felt that God only loved men. Lilius relates this story in her journals. We began speaking of our Lord's love. This lady shook her head and said most sadly, No, he does not love the women, only the men. We repeated John 3.16, but she said only again and again, No, no, not the world, not the women, only men. 
And that would be most crushing for you, especially if you're limited in language because you want to go and, and say more and kind of encourage them, but you don't have the capacity to do so. So I can imagine this definitely broke their hearts when they heard this. And they were very frustrated with their limits in language. And they wanted to go out among the people. And so they moved into the old city of Algiers because they thought that would make them learn a lot faster. And it definitely did because when you immerse yourselves, then that kind of forces you to learn the language. And so they practiced reading a passage or two from the Gospels aloud in Arabic for those who could not read the Gospel tracts they handed out. And so these different boys uh, gathered up these tracts and they began reading them. And I think it was about the Lord's return. And so these, these gatherings would be filled with these rowdy boys who apparently thought that from reading the track that Jesus was returning to Trotter's living room. And so they they were they were attending to watch Jesus return, uh, which was a funny misunderstanding, but obviously they were there, so they were able to hear the message that they were telling them. But they were also having opposition from these three boys who were led by a crippled boy who had been raised by Jesuits. And so these three boys would often shut down the meetings. Um, They would turn out the lights. They would do all sorts of things um, in order to make sure the meetings didn't happen. And so they would often have to take off uh, certain times. Like they couldn't do the meetings for a period of time until these kind of troublemakers decided to, to ease off for a little while. Um, But God, all the same, opened more doors for them. They were helping treat children's ailments and care for them. And they began a children's Bible study class of about nine or ten boys. And one of the boys ran out terrified after being drawn, and he took half the class with him. One of the things that shocked me about reading this, and I had never considered this before, never heard it before, was just how superstitious Muslims are. Now, I don't know if this is a region-specific thing or just all Muslims everywhere have this level of superstition, but according to Lilius, it seems that they seem to think that every creature that is drawn must have a soul belonging to it somewhere, and they are afraid that their souls will be spirited away to inhabit the bodies that are represented, and it applies even to animals. Someone told me of an artist who showed an Arab a drawing he had made of a fish. And the Arab said gravely, what will you do in the resurrection? Do you know that you will have to find a soul for that fish? So a very interesting mission field, because right when you think you know something, you run into a superstition that you had no idea would ever have existed. Around this time, an old French lady joined them in making the rounds. She kind of joined their uh, their ministry, and she was married, which they found out was a definite blessing because many of the locals began to think that being single was a part of their religion, which kind of makes sense when you think about it because, you know, it's French, Catholics, nuns, priests. Um, so this was kind of good for them to normalize that, hey, healthy marriage relationships are completely within the norm, within the realm of, of Christianity. Eventually, they founded the Algiers Mission Band, and it was a very small but determined band. Eventually, it was kind of absorbed into another uh, missions agency, and I think eventually it became part of Pioneers. Within their first year, they had actually baptized their first convert, and she says, Our chapter at prayer told us of the first fruits presented before God, and it was just that. We have felt a sense of storm through the air, a sense of war again, such as we have not felt these last months. Soon persecution and hard blows fell on Ahmed. He was the guy that they baptized. He came back bleeding, 18 Arabs having set upon him. He, quiet and happy, had not struck back, but this could not go on or the mission would inevitably get into trouble with the authorities, so it was felt best to send him to Tunis. In the meantime, the houses kept opening and the work increasing. 
They experience, particularly she says, a lot of spiritual opposition during Ramadan. And so she focuses on quite a bit about what God's doing behind the scenes and just some different things that were happening. And this particular entry, I believe, is their first Ramadan. She says, We went this evening to see this service in a mosque, a special service the last week of Ramadan. I wish I could give the feeling of it, the great dim mosque lit by rows of tiny lamps, open on all sides to a court brilliant with starlight, with trees and a splashing fountain. And then the rows of these solemn white figures rising and falling simultaneously in their prostrations, like the waves of the sea. The front row, the strictest sect, joined in the recitations of the imam. And then suddenly the whole crowd went down on their faces. And after a pause of silence, there was kind of a wail being repeated at intervals of a moment or two by the whole congregation, with their bodies being rocked backwards and forwards again to the ground. Allah, 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 there was this indescribable moan in the intonation, a crying out for a living God. The echo of it has rung in my ears. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low, net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Skipping forward a few years into 1893, she says souls were being drawn to God, but the fight was fierce, and she and all of her friends felt moved to go even more away from the city proper and into the tiny villages next to the sea, which were made up mostly of tents. And she tells these ladies who had urged her to plead to Muhammad for her soul. So when they heard her talking about uh, Christ, they said, no, you have to, you have to repent. This is awful. Like if you don't repent, then you're, you're basically, you're damned. So repent to Muhammad. Um, and she couldn't get anywhere with these ladies. And she began to go a little bit further down into this row of tents. And they said, you don't want to go any further because there are these wild dogs that apparently would eat them. And so she turns another way and she goes to a different group of tents. And a few women and many children ran up to her and begged them to live with them. Um, and one of them showed her the scratches on her face. This is kind of a younger uh, younger woman who is newly married. Uh, but she had these scratches on her face where she was mourning for her husband. And these women, they asked her, they asked Lilius, what did you do when people died? And Lilius said, I told her that if we believed in Jesus, God comforted us. It seemed to strike them so, so they kept repeating it to one another. God comforts them. God comforts them. Oh, the awful need of the world. It presses on one coming to a new ground like this. So Lilius began working with these women, and she provided them with skills like she did in London. And I love seeing these kind of like this full circle of ministry where she be, she was working with the WYCA, giving these ladies these skills to help them improve their lives. And there was absolutely no way that later on, you know, 10, 12 years later, that she would realize she'd be using these exact same skills that she had honed to be teaching these ladies uh, important, valuable skills that would help them survive. Because oftentimes these women would be cast out when their husbands chose a younger wife, which would leave the old wife on the streets. 
And they very quickly began to learn that Lilius didn't just talk a good talk, Lilius actually cared. And so eventually they named her La La Lily, which meant that the woman who cares, the one who loves. And so even when everybody else cast them out, she would still love them. And in this way, she was reflecting Christ to them. One of the things I noticed about Lilius reading through this biography is that she doesn't stay still in one area for very long, or at least she doesn't seem to, which would be kind of the opposite of what you would expect because she has this heart condition, um, but she also has this heart for people. And I realize that sounds a little bit cheesier than I anticipated, but we'll, we'll keep it. Um, but she she always wants to go further and further, and her sights got set onto the desert because there are lots of different nomadic people groups living in the desert. And she said no one's reached them for the gospel or very few people have been able to reach them for the gospel. And so when she she struck out for the desert, uh, she had very many opportunities to talk with people. Um, but definitely there was a lot more opposition and distrust uh, the further away from the cities that you got because you also had less interactions with Westerners out there. Um, these heavy rains when they went out stalled their travels further, but also enabled them to share the gospel a bit longer. So sometimes we think about things as being inconvenient, but oftentimes you come to find out later that there was actually a good reason for it. Because if she had just kept moving swiftly, it, she might not have been able to have some of the conversations that she was able to have being stuck in by the rain. During her time spent in these desert villages, she writes this, We got round to three villages, and oh, it is wonderful to be allowed to be the ones to break the silence in which God has been loving them all this time. We believe there will be a real work of the Spirit among these mountains. There is so much more sense of sin than in Algiers. Oh, we are bad, the people say. We lie, we quarrel, and other words I do not understand. The third village touched us the most. It lay scattered among the stones of a great avalanche of rock that had carried it halfway down the mountain long ago to such a dreary-looking place. We told the first woman we met that we had come to see them. She said, what is there to see? There is nothing but stones and mud, and all of it seemed so hopeless. And we had a long talk with a young fellow who was about 20. He said, God cares nothing for us, with a defiant look, and there is nothing worth living for. It's all dung and mud here, and we don't know if there's any heaven. There is something very touching in the way they pick up and pass on little bits of truth they can understand. As we were leaving, there was one sad-faced woman with her arms around a chubby little child. I said, you love that little girl? She said, yes, I'm a widow, she answered, and she is as my eyes. That is the way God loves you, I said. He tells us we are as his eyes. In the next group we came to, I overheard one of the lads telling a new woman that we had come to tell them that God loves them as his eyes. Oh, that they may know and believe the love that God has for us. I have felt up here as never before the power of beginning with the one bit of truth that they have got a hold of about Christ, that he is coming again in judgment. Now, their version is mingled with strange fancies. For instance, they say that before he comes, men will have dwindled down in stature until they are only about three feet high. But still, we hold to the fact that it is steadily drawing nearer. They want to know how soon to expect him. And when we tell them that we know neither the day nor the hour, they look sobered. 
after this first bout in the desert, she heads back to Algiers for a time and then heads back out into the desert going even further this time. She says, I had a good time with a group of big lads telling them the story of the crucifixion. But when we got to the village and began talking to the group of men outside the gate, they just howled at us and would not listen to a word. Their hearts were all as white as snow, they said. And if they ever did anything wrong, their witness to Muhammad was like soap and cleansed it out. They had the right way to heaven. What were we who never prayed or fasted or gave alms? What were we to come and talk to them? They knew the road to heaven. We went off to see if the women were more accessible and were taken to the house of the bride, where the greater part of them grouped. She was sitting like a statue with a little round-looking glass at the end of a stick held in her hand. Her mouth died all round with henna. Such a sad mouth it was. They crowded around, men and women, but the women were as hard as the men. Blanche slipped in and said a few words to the sorrowful little bride and her bridesmaid who sat by her, and it was the only gleam of softening there. We left it sadly lying under its lovely mountains. It was the toughest place we have come across. Now, as she ventured further out into the desert, she came into contact with the Sufi Muslim Brotherhood, which are a group of mystic Muslims, and they invited her into their fellowship to discuss her views. And this is completely unheard of. She is a woman. She's a woman preaching about something they don't understand, which I guess is the good thing about mysticism is that they're open to other interpretations, I suppose. But this had never happened before. And they developed a mutual respect, both of them definitely trying to convince the other one of their way being correct. But based on her interactions with the Sufi Muslim Brotherhood, she wrote this book called The Way of the Sevenfold Secret, which is based on the seven I Am statements in the book of John. And this book revolutionized the ministry to the Sufis. A lot of Lilius's ministry was that way, something that you would think, now we would think this is commonplace, you know, being able to use these seven I am statements, using tracks, um, using job skills. That was something that was very new. And so Lilius was definitely pioneering these kind of techniques about I, what I've heard is people say about 100 years uh, ahead of her time. Okay, I'm going to skip forward a little bit. She tells some different stories about people that she met during her, particularly her ministry in Algiers. She says, There was a gentle girl wife of 16 or so named Baya. One day when we were passing along an impasse, or that is a a blind alley, there came a soft call from a tiny window overhead, and there was a glimmer of one of their delicately tinted silk handkerchiefs knotted around a little head, being quickly withdrawn. It was a strong measure for an Arab woman to take if she were respectable, and we doubted for a moment whether to go in, as we did not know the house. But the inward voice seemed to say, go, and we found this child with a real heart hunger that had made her brave native rules of etiquette to get us in anyhow next time we passed. Something had filtered to her secondhand about a savior who could wash sins away, and she wanted to hear more. Such a pathetic little soul she was, torn away from home at fourteen— and married among strangers here in a faraway place. She would sit every time we went into her, drinking in everything. The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. And lo, I am with you all the days, even to the end of the world. Those two verses were her creed. We had not thought that this was the answer in store for our prayers. We had hoped much from her. God's thoughts were higher than our thoughts. She was a sensitive soul who would have suffered greatly in bearing the cross, perhaps would have drawn back under the suffering, and he took her almost before she knew that there was any cross to bear. She passed away suddenly when her baby came. We did not know it till the next day, and it came as quite the shock. 
But there again, we could not doubt that she was with Christ. His name, not Muhammad's, was on her lips to the last. She also talks about another lady whom they had met uh, far earlier, and she they weren't really sure if if she had actually understood the gospel message and had no idea what really happened to her. But she says, The other day she came to beg me to visit her husband, who had been seized by rapid consumption. We asked about his soul. He believes, she answered with a ring of triumph in her voice. I have told him all I knew. Jesus has come into his heart. We went to see him and found it was so. His poor wasted face was a light and a glow. Though never a word had he had to help him except the little fragments his wife could tell him. We do praise God. In helping with their ministry, Lilius designed these uh, these tracks, which were um, in kind of the style, the Arabic style, because a lot of the tracks they were getting beforehand were in more of the European style, which just didn't translate very well in the culture. And so Lilius worked very hard with somebody else to design specifically Arabic Algerian tracks, which went way better. And they were parables and gospel tracks. And they focused on these two main things, the acknowledgement of sin and the acceptance of a loving savior. And these tracks were very much successful in a Muslim Arabic speaking country because of their innate love of storytelling. And actually, Lilius writes two books. She has two books that are called The Parables of the Cross and Parables of Christ, I believe. Um, which are also inspired by her time spent among people who loved telling stories. And she began to have more of an appreciation for the way that God tells stories in Scripture. Lilius tells a ton of stories in this biography that are collected by her friend uh, that I definitely encourage you to check out, as I always do. And I will link uh, the biography in the, in the episode description. But she tells about these people, and it was actually quite common. And it's one of those things where I wish I had a bit more information because she mentions it so casually. It kind of reminds me of uh, Annie Taylor mentioning being poisoned in her eggs. And it just it's just... You know, it's a typical morning, basically. They don't expound upon it, which I wish they would. But anyway, she tells us about these people who, after they became Christians, they were given some kind of, basically, mind drug that made them more feeble of mind, basically, made them more pliable, I suppose. And then when they were kind of taken off the drug, the things that they had done to betray Christ basically incapacitated them and made them unable to basically, they felt so ashamed of the things that they had done or said while under the influence of these poisons that they they just felt that they couldn't come back to Christ. And she tells a story about one guy. There was this, this charm kind of thing that was found written on a piece of paper that was basically forbidding him from coming to a meeting. And so the members of the, the ministry got together to pray for him and they threw this charm into the fire, just kind of destroyed it. And within an hour, this guy had come back to the mission house and was talking about how ashamed he was of the things that he had done while under the influence, basically renouncing in the name of Christ. Um, and she just she mentions this, like I said, so just casually, but apparently it was very commonplace. So there's just all sorts of things that are happening during her 40-year ministry that are just, just absolutely just would, would boggle the mind. 
Now, you would be forgiven for forgetting this, but she does have a heart condition that she would kind of have to go back and forth um, to Europe to kind of get treated, to rest. And eventually, during the last few years of her life, she was confined to her bed, and she was too weak to leave the mission house, even though she was still trying to be as involved as humanly possible. And she was pen pals during this time with Amy Carmichael, who was also uh, bedridden for the last several years of her life. And there's no more information I can find about that. I would love to have some of those letters, but we just, we don't have them. During the last few years of her life, she had tons of time to reflect on what God had done. And she came to the realization, or not just came to the realization, she she knew and recognized full heartedly that God had brought her to this beautiful place, that she had given up art uh, to follow what God had, had, had called her to do. But at the same time, like she said, there's no more beautiful place that God could have brought me than Algeria. Just the things she was able to paint, um, the images she was able to create, and the things she was able to see were so beautiful to her that she actually felt like nothing had been given away at all, which is just really uh, incredible. Lilius did pass away on August 27, 1928, at the age of 75. And her poem, Focused, inspired the hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. And I want to read it to you guys because I think it's really uh, quite beautiful. And I'm not going to read the whole thing, just kind of some, some bits here and there. In the narrowing and focusing, the channel will be prepared for God's power. Like the stream hymn between the rock beds that wells up in a spring. Like the burning glass that gathers the rays into an intensity that will kindle fire. It is worthwhile to let God see what he can do with these lives of ours. When to live is Christ. Turn full your soul's vision to Jesus, and look and look at Him, and a strange dimness will come over all that is apart from Him, and the divine attraction by which God's saints are made will lay hold of you, for He is worthy to have all there is to be had in the heart that He has died to win. I was reading an interview with one of the makers of this documentary about Lilius's life called Many Beautiful Things. It is actually on YouTube. You can watch it for free. But at the time of this interview, which is probably probably eight years ago, there were about 50,000 to 75,000 Christians in Algeria living underground because Algeria is a Muslim country. And one of the ministers on the ground said that this, the existence of these 50,000 to 75,000 Christians is a direct attribute to Lilius Trotter, without whom they would never have had the groundwork to minister uh, to the Algerians. John Ruskin told her that she could do immortal things, and I would argue that she did. Her legacy is immortal. The souls that she met in heaven matter far more than the paint she left on a canvas. Thank you for listening to Martyrs and Missionaries. I'm Elise.
What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.